podcasting about cryptocurrencies is a strange occupation. You get emails all the time from companies that are doing a token sale that you would never want to be affiliated with. You get angry tweets from anonymous Twitter accounts that are on one side or another of the Bitcoin scaling debate. And you also get to interview extreme personalities. And the technical discussions around cryptocurrencies can be highly educational. Brian Fabian Crane started the Epicenter podcast four years ago. Podcasting about cryptocurrencies allows a podcaster like Brian to report on a wide variety of areas, economics, software, philosophy, and the stories within the blockchain world itself are overlapping among all these different topics. Epicenter is one of my favorite podcasts about cryptocurrencies because Brian is always prepared enough to ask sophisticated questions. And in this episode, we talk about a wide variety of things. We talked about ICOs. When does an ICO make sense? It seems that many token economies could function just as well without a token involved. And we discuss what these token economies will become if their token is not necessary. We discussed the scaling approaches of Bitcoin and Ethereum. Why are these two blockchains taking very different approaches to their scaling plans? We also talked about Chorus, which is the company that Brian founded to build infrastructure for proof-of-stake cryptocurrencies. I enjoyed talking to Brian about all these different subjects, and I look forward to having him on again in the future. I recommend anybody who is a fan of the cryptocurrency shows we've done to check out Epicenter. It's really a great show. Brian Fabian Crane, you are the host of Epicenter. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoy Epicenter. It's a podcast about blockchain technology. Why did you start podcasting about blockchains? Yeah, so I learned about Bitcoin in the summer of 2013, like kind of early summer. And at the time I was finishing a master thesis. So I was you know, busy with that. And you know, it was kind of, okay, how do I learn about Bitcoin? And just what I did was whenever I was on the way anywhere, I would listen to a podcast and specifically a less of Bitcoin, which was the only podcast at the time. And that's how I learned about Bitcoin. And I had been interested in the podcasting format for a long time and felt it was just a really powerful way to learn about a topic and you kind of get into a field and an industry as well. So then soon afterwards, I wanted to work full time in the Bitcoin space. And at the time, there wasn't really any jobs and I didn't have you know, a business idea myself. So what I did was the first thing I did was I started a meetup group and I started organizing events. Back then, it was every two weeks and get people to do talks. And I gave a lot of talks myself at the time about, you know, you know just take a topic and give a talk about a particular aspect, you know, whether it was like how fees work in Bitcoin or a particular aspect about mining or security of Bitcoin, etc. And the second thing I did was that I started this podcast, which was back in December 2013, together with Sebastian Couture. And yeah, we've been running that podcast, you know, every single week since the first week of January 2014. Before you went full on into cryptocurrencies, you did spend some time in the traditional finance world. I think you worked as a commodities trader how does the traditional finance world compare to the cryptocurrency world? Yes, this is a good question. So I grew up in Switzerland, and then after high school, I went to the U.S. for college. So I went to Chicago, and I studied economics at the University of Chicago. And of course, that's sort of a you know traditional, well-known economics department. And I had this goal of going to the U.S. for a long time and studying economics. But then once I got there, I was a bit, you know, I had sort of reached that goal and I didn't have a goal beyond that. And I was a little bit lost about what to do. And, you know, I think like in many good universities, if you go to an economics department and undergrad people, many of them at that time went into investment banking and I didn't know what else to do. So I kind of did the same thing. And I, I ended up doing an internship with HSBC and, you know, in, in New York in debt capital markets. So it's kind of like creating bonds, like corporate bonds. And I liked it and I hated it. So I, I, what I liked about it is actually finance. I found it was really interesting and I was kind of like, you know, good at it. And 
But at the same time, I, I really hated the environment and like getting in there every morning. And there was just so much about this whole structure that I revolted against. So in the end, I decided not to do a job there. And, and I, I went to go traveling around the world for a while. Then I was again kind of lost and I went back to Switzerland where I'm from and, and I worked a little bit in this commodities trading thing. I wasn't trading myself. I was doing sort of the trade execution stuff. Uh, that was not my favorite job. It was pretty boring. And yeah, I was a little bit lost. And then I ended up doing uh, going back to school and a master in economics. And, and then I kind of became interested in startups and technology. I hear you. I can relate to that. When I was in school... I found finance interesting. I played poker and I liked the incentives, the, you know, I like looking at charts and thinking about human behavior and how that translates into prices and things like that. And then I found myself looking for a job out of school and I went into a trading company and then certain aspects, like you said, you know, you love certain aspects of it and you hate other aspects of it. And I think that the thing that when I was at a trading company, what I longed for and what I would see in other areas of the technology world is that people, there's other areas of the technology world where stuff really gets built. And and at a trading company, stuff does get built, but it's mostly, it's securities, it's internal technology to make trading more efficient. And outside of the trading world, you see technology companies where they're building very new things and in the cryptocurrency world you you see a whole lot of very new things getting built do you think these two worlds are colliding are the the world of traditional finance is that colliding with the world of cryptocurrencies today well yes and no i think there is a lot of technology that's encroaching on that world and you know trying to reinvent it and redo it but at the same time, I think these institutions are so, there's such an institutional inertia in them and so much conservatism and they have such a hard time to innovate and do anything new. So I'm quite skeptical about their ability to adapt to this new world. And I spent from about you know middle of 2015 to the end of 2016, I was working for this company called Monax. And that was they started in 2014 and it was the first company at that time to do enterprise Ethereum applications. And I was doing business development for that company. So I spent a lot of time speaking with exactly, you know, innovation people at banks and insurance companies and stuff like that. And nothing ever happened. You have so many conversations and, you know, maybe there's some sort of POC after months and they build a little thing and then it dies somewhere. And, and I feel even today, if you look, so so little has happened on the whole enterprise and corporate side. So I feel it's much more that we, we're going to fundamentally redesign and reinvent how financial interactions work, you know, based on blockchain and decentralized technologies. And I, I don't really feel there's going to be so much of a merger as a replacement of the existing system. What kind of topics do you try to cover on your podcast on Epicenter? So we try to cover whatever we find most interesting personally and what we find is most important in terms of the development of all of this technology. And that has, of course, evolved over time. In the beginning, it was, at least in title, it was called Epicenter Bitcoin. That being said, we started doing episodes you know, about Ethereum just a few months in and we started doing a lot of different topics. And then, you know, over time, it was a lot of things about regulation, about scalability, about ICOs, about the whole, just a lot of different projects, you know, uh, or applications that people were building on, uh, on Ethereum or the investment side has also become a pretty big thing, like how to think about tokens and the valuation of tokens and these new crypto funds. We are very broad. I think we try to cover pretty much anything that's interesting in, in this wider universe. Do you try to vet any of these products, like I've had some companies on the show and when I start researching them, like some of these ICO companies, I'm, I'm a little skeptical of the technical quality of what they're building. I do think it's useful to get a snapshot into the time that we live in where companies with not very well-developed technology can raise tons of money, or at least they could raise tons of money four or five months ago 
And sometimes I, I wonder, like, maybe I shouldn't have even had these kinds of companies on, on the show in, in the first place, though. I, how thoroughly do you try to vet the projects before you accept them as guests? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, we don't have the knowledge nor the time to, you know, do some sort of deep technical vetting or look at the code base or anything like that. Of course, we do look at, let's say, read the white papers, like, okay, is this coherent? Does it make sense? Or maybe look at some how, what stage are they in? So in particular, when it comes to projects doing ICOs, what we try to do is unless they have, you know, a track record or it's extremely original idea or the team has done very interesting things in the past or something like that, that makes it really stand out. You know, sort of our default answer to that is, well, let's do the episode once you guys have launched your product, you know, then come back to us. So we do try to like not to have too many projects that are sort of in this ICO promotion phase. But that being said, we've definitely had projects on the podcast where afterwards we felt, ah, oh, we shouldn't have done that. We should have done better. We have <laughs> that was probably wrong to give them a platform. And then we have gotten a lot of criticism for that point. Like we've gotten so many comments, people saying, oh, you guys are promoting shitty projects and <laughs> you're not being critical enough. This is probably the number one criticism of us is that we're not being critical enough. So we try to be, but we often don't live up to it. Well, the thing is, it's really easy to ask critical questions of these ICO companies because so many of these ICO companies look extremely opportunistic. And unfortunately, it's impossible to tell the ones who just look opportunistic from the ones who might actually be still standing in in five years. Like some of these companies, I hope, will be durable. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question, you know, to what extent is it predictable? I do feel it is, it's actually possible to vet projects reasonably well, you know, in particular, like, okay, have they worked on this problem for a long time? I think anyone who comes along and, you know, just starts a project because now there's this ICO thing and you can actually monetize it, you know, that's probably a project to be fairly skeptical about. But yeah, I think especially for outsiders of the industry or who, who aren't spending like a huge amount of time in this, you know, it's very hard to vet projects. And it's especially it was obvious in the sort of, you know, November, December, October last year time when we really had this massive bubble and so many new people started getting interested in this. And so all of a sudden I had all of these people, you know, writing me and emailing me they're like, oh, I'm starting to get, I'm starting to invest too, and I'm buying this coin and buying that coin. And you know, the quality of project that these people will buy is very low. So I think there is a big division, maybe also in terms of who these projects target. When when there's some projects that are really just focusing on tech, and then they feel like the people who are knowledgeable they will find it. And then there's others that, you know, just focus on the marketing. And then they find all of the people who, you know, running after this new shiny thing with big promises. Some of these ICOs, you know, I saw the the vesting schedules for some of these and they, they have a two year, they'll have a two year vesting schedule. So you'll have people who are starting a technology product, they're doing an ICO and they themselves are running the technology and there's a two year vesting schedule for their shares of token. And I just, to me, that's like the biggest red flag ever, where it's basically, yeah, after two years, I can just leave this project and take all of my coins with me. And I look at that and I'm like, are they, I mean, maybe that's a cutting edge idea. Maybe that's, uh, you know, okay, you leave your project after two years with the idea that your open source community is going to take it over. Or is it just self-delusional, do you think? Do you think it's insane to think that after two years, if you start an ICO, uh, if you start a, if you start a, a, a open-source tokenized platform, in two years, if your tokens vest, do you think there are some of these projects where the open-source community will just have purchased these tokens, and so they will have a vested interest in the project, and they will be able to continue to harbor developments in the technology what should the vesting schedules for these be (laughs) well i mean so you're saying two-year vesting schedules but i think it's much worse right so first of all even when they have a two-year vesting schedule for the most part 
they start vesting immediately and it's more like they vest monthly right over two years so they can actually start cashing out immediately and of course if you have you know let's say you have a market cap of 100 million and the team has 20 percent or things like that then uh, that vesting over two years that means you have almost a million dollars worth of you know that particular token that this team can start selling, you know, every single month. And of course, they haven't built anything at that time, you know, at least for the most part, or they, they've just started. And I think you're absolutely right to point out that these projects will not, I think the idea that, okay, after two years, there's some community that takes it over and runs with it, and it just sort of runs itself forever, is certainly an illusion. And I think we, we are going to see a massive amount of scams, and we have seen a lot of scams, but I think it's going to be much worse in that there's just so many pe- projects that raise this money and they have these tokens and they're going to cash it out. And then these projects are all going to die a slow death. And what do you think is the psychology of these ICO hawkers? Because obviously some of them know that they are complete scammers. I think I saw, what was this one yesterday? Like a drone ICO company or something like that, where the founder had literally changed the website to some South Park meme that was like, hey, I took your money and ran away with it. That's like the extreme end of it. But at the more subtle granularities of this ICO insanity, you have people who are self-delusional, where they have convinced themselves to some degree that their project makes sense and that then they're actually building some useful technology but at the same time they have something like a two-year vesting schedule that like you said has monthly vesting and so there's there's some disconnect there you've interacted with enough of these people like what do you think is the self is the psychology there right so i I think you're totally right that amount of actual scams is probably not that high but the amount of projects that are going to turn into some sort of quasi-scam, I think, is very high. And the quasi-scam is exactly the self-delusional thing. You know, someone with some sort of half-baked idea starts something. They don't really question enough whether this whole thing makes sense. They don't do enough research. Then they, you know, run out. They start raising money and, you know, put a lot of effort into marketing. Maybe they raise money. Maybe at the say all of the time, there's some sort of doubt. Does it really make sense? Do we, are we competent enough? Can we do this? But, you know, you go ahead and let's say people actually put money in it. And then I think it's very easy to start believing that this whole thing makes sense. Right. The market is validating it. This this must be a good idea. And then let's say this token starts trading. And of course, again, it is very easy to say, okay, we have succeeded. We have launched something here. And yeah. And so I think actually the aspect that they're immediately liquid and that you have this market feedback mechanism can probably contribute a lot to projects, you know, thinking they're competent and they're on the right track and they're doing something and that they're going to succeed and they had that they have to build value i think this is the other illusion right just because people are trading it and buying for a particular amount the idea that okay now i you know i've deserved these 10 million that these tokens are worth right are you convinced that the ico is a useful tool at this point because i've tried to ask some of these ico companies the question why not just if you need a currency for your product, if you need a specific currency, why not just use Ethereum? You know, you could just use or Ether. You know, you could just use Ether as the currency, your domain-specific currency. I do see the value of having these domain-specific coins within certain contexts, just like at an arcade. Maybe it makes sense to have Chuck E. Cheese coins at the Chuck E. Cheese arcade. But I'm a little dubious. Like, you look at Amazon... For example, most of the transactions that go through Amazon are in USD. They don't have some pro like they don't encourage people to build the Amazon gift certificate economy and transact in Amazon gift certificates all the time. I mean, I guess they do have the Amazon credit card where, you know, you get 5% off if you use the Amazon credit card. And so ICOs could do something like that where like you wash your ether in some sort of ICO transaction or some domain-specific transactionality, and then you get a discount or something. But I'm kind of, I don't know. I just wonder if actually we need so many tokens. Right. So I, I think there's multiple things here. So one is the question of, you know, are these all of these tokens necessary? And I'm sure in many cases they're not. 
and they're just there because they're a great way to raise money. And I, of course, I'm very skeptical that those projects will succeed, not least because generally they'll be open source. And so, and, and if the token is just added to, you know, to raise money, then probably the token doesn't have a core functionality. It actually right. adds friction to the product. Right. It makes it a worse product. So you can just fork it, get rid of the token, and you have a better product. And then, of course, the value proposition is extremely bad. <laughs> yeah, so that's one problem. That being said, I think in, I do think the idea of creating these incentive systems and rewarding people with tokens or having tokens for some sort of staking function or maybe sometimes for payments in an application. I, mean, I think there is a lot of interesting and positive a- effect or like aspects of this too. And, you know, of course, Ethereum is a great example, right? So much, so many good things and so much innovation has come out of that. And that was mm-hmm. an ICO. So I think that, you know, there's both. Now, at yeah. this point, of course, the ICO has become, I think, an extremely risky way to go, also from a legal and regulatory perspective, especially if you do anything with like US presidents, US people. So, uh, I mean, uh, it seems pretty clear that at this point the trend is very clearly away from ICOs and having some sort of private sales and then having maybe tokens that are given out to users in an application. And, you know, there's pros and cons to that. I mean, on the one hand, maybe it will mean less fraud, maybe. It's certainly less risky for these projects. Uh, But on the other hand, it's also... A little bit sad because even though there are a lot of bad things about ICOs and we've spoken about the bad things and about these tokens, one of the great things is that it has opened up access to investing in these things to just a huge range of people. And and that's great, right? This democratization of, of finance and of these applications, they are getting lost currently. Completely agree with that. I really like your point. If the technology makes sense, but the fundraising, it's not clear how to fundraise, so they tack on a token in order to facilitate fundraising. Well, if the quality of the technology pans out, then somebody can just fork it and make it compliant with Ether or make it compliant with USD or Bitcoin or whatever is a more widely accepted currency, then the, the value of the token is just going to go away. You're an economist. Like Take something like Filecoin, right? Filecoin is widely accepted even among a lot of the skeptics as this is one of the higher quality token sales. But I could imagine a Filecoin network where you don't you're not required to use to, to transact with with Filecoin. From your economist side of your brain, do you have a set of criteria where you can look at an economy and say, okay, this economy is something that is going to make use of a token in the long term rather than just a short-term fundraising vector? I think that the key question or the key point to start at just is, it, would it be possible to build this application without that token? Or does this application gain something essential from having a particular token? And, you know, if you look at something like Bitcoin, you could not have Bitcoin without Bitcoin, of course. And again, with Ethereum... You couldn't have Ethereum without the native token to pay for gas and transaction fees, right? So in, in each of those cases, they're actually an absolutely fundamental component of the network. And again, if you look at now proof-of-stake networks, well, the, the staking token is, is essential right, for the security of the network, so you need that. And then I think there's a strong use case for it. Now, if you look at the, you know a token to pay for a particular application, then I think probably in most cases, you don't need that. So I think I'll probably look at it through that lens. So first of all, just, you know, is this token necessary? And then, you know, assuming it is necessary, then, of course, th- there's questions about, you know, valuation and supply and the quality of the project, and the quality of the team. I think I would probably look at it through those those two angles. Yeah, and what I wonder is to what degree, you know, the network effect comes into it. Because, you know, if you look into, you know, I, like everybody else in the Silicon Valley herd, has taken a look at Sapiens, and in Sapiens, you know, he writes a lot about why do people use money, and a lot of the reasons that people use money is because we have all told ourselves enough of a story about 
paper money that we all believe it, and so we're all willing to transact with it. So there's this network effect quality where it doesn't even matter if there's some intrinsic need for it. Once a currency passes a certain threshold of uh, wide acceptability, it becomes valuable. And so there is this network effect that can emerge, this tulip-like phenomenon. And so it's it's almost like you maybe trying to pin down some sort of intrinsic value is less important than is the project structured in a way where the token can achieve network effects. Like you look at something like Filecoin, okay, so IPFS is useful even without the Filecoin network, as we've seen with the Wikipedia, in sense, it's like a censorship-resistant file storage network, potentially. So we saw with the Wikipedia in Turkey thing, it evaded censorship. I'm, I'm not sure to what degree people were actually using it, but there was some practicality there. So you could imagine IPFS becoming widely useful, and at the same time, you're gradually having uh, investors have access to Filecoin via presale. So maybe Filecoin makes its way around the world, and so you have people using Filecoin, so or people having Filecoin as an investment. So once the Filecoin network comes online, you have people who, who are incentivized to set up these nodes and... The nodes uh, have an economy that is backed by Filecoin, and it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy because they architected the distribution of the coins well enough. I don't know. It's so hard to predict how these things will play out, but I can understand the the high uh, speculation and the high anticipation of Filecoin just because of uh, the quality of the, of the core technology and the, I guess, the sophistication of the team in terms of how they know the network effects need to develop. I don't know. I guess I don't have any concise thoughts there, but... Yeah, I mean, I I think you bring up network effects and and that's an important point. And I think if the token is a key way to create network effects, then that may well be a totally legitimate and strong use case for a token. So yeah, I I think if that's the case, you know, if you have this token and the token is going to be the key incentive mechanism to create these massive network effects, well, fantastic. Then perhaps there is really... A big, a big use case for it. I'm, I don't honestly have an opinion on whether that's the case in Filecoin. I don't understand that project well enough, but maybe the case. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, likewise. Well, I'll have to ask somebody from that team about it. Let's talk about more tangential things, or, or tangible things, I should say. Bitcoin and Ethereum. You have dove deep into both of these communities. How would you describe the differences between the Bitcoin and the Ethereum communities? Sure. I mean, I think the Bitcoin community, they have mostly been interested and captured by this idea of global decentralized money and this kind of digital gold and this sort of cypherpunky ideas. And maybe at some point it was a little bit more diverse and there were other people who were less focused on just that, but still part of the Bitcoin community. And I think those people probably left for the most part and gone to Ethereum or gone on to do other things. And I think at this point, the Bitcoin community you know, is very, very focused on, on that particular use case. And so it's also a very political community, very libertarian very anti-government, very radical, I think. And then the Ethereum community is just much more open-minded, I would say, much less ideological, more practical, more pragmatic, maybe don't have such strong shared values. And I think that's kind of how I see those two communities. Why did the different sides of the Bitcoin community emerge in this huge rift around block size? (laughs) Yes, that's a good question. We have done many podcasts about this. Well, you know, so to me, it doesn't exactly make sense. Because for for me, I I always understood this core Bitcoin digital gold value proposition. It made so much sense to me. And, And this is actually a big reason why I initially got interested in Bitcoin. That being said, I was also very interested in other applications. Then I had absolutely thought Ethereum was great, et cetera. So with Bitcoin, it just, it, to my eyes, it made a lot of sense to increase this block size and to bring on more capacity and, and thus have more users. And, you know, with Epicenter, we've been running a business for years and we would accept Bitcoin from advertisers and we pay our people in Bitcoin and, and that worked fine. And then you know, at some point it stopped working because your know, transaction cost 
cost 30 or 50 dollars and if we had to pay our designer in india in bitcoin that just made zero sense right so we had to actually stop using it or move to bitcoin cash partially and you know this was highly irritating so it's like if you're using bitcoin this is seemed like such an obvious thing to me and it seems like something that shouldn't be a political thing but more a question of you know what's the right choice i honestly do not fully understand why there's been this opposition to increasing the block size you know to some extent but then I think what happened is just that we had to split, right? And we had these different ideologies and camps, and I think they became entrenched. And in the end, I think this actual issue that was just being discussed was almost a non-issue. It's a weird thing. I do not have an entirely satisfying answer of why it went that course. Yeah, I need to interview somebody from Blockstream or a Lightning Network company about this because I'm equally confused. I just did a show with Roger Ver and I was talking to him about this. And I mean, I guess I can understand it from the standpoint of if I was to try to give the strongest argument for the smaller block size is that you could imagine a world where everybody wants to have a full node that runs on their mobile device and it's connected over Lightning Network. But I don't know, I'm not enough of an expert to really understand why that would be useful. Do you you have a sense of the state of Lightning Network development? Is there some reason to emphasize smaller blocks for the sake of the Lightning Network? Well, so we did the first episode about Lightning Network, I guess when that white paper came out, which was like three years ago or something like that. And even at the time, actually, we talked about the block size in that episode. I remember that because one of the things with the Lightning Network is that the security of you having Bitcoins on that Lightning Network actually depends on you being able to like close the channel and create a transaction on the main net. So if you have full blocks on Bitcoin, then it can get difficult to close out your, your Lightning Network channel. So it actually becomes less secure and less usable, the Lightning Network. It becomes less usable if you have big blocks? If you have small blocks, right? Because if you want to, first of all, opening a channel costs more money. Second of all, closing a channel costs more money. And third of all, if you you know you have like a time limit sometimes to, to close a channel and to get your money, right? So if you can't close a channel in time, somebody can potentially steal your money. So if you have full blocks and you know you have to wait for a long time, Lightning Networks can become insecure. So we talked back then with the authors of the white papers. It was Joseph Poon and Todd Dreja, and I think they actually agreed. You know, you need bigger blocks for the Lightning Network. So I don't think there's any reason why the Lightning Network implies that you shouldn't have bigger blocks. Of course, it is true that you have, will have some demand move to the Lightning Network. So overall, it will you know, decrease the, the necessity of doing on-chain transactions. But even for the Lightning Network, I think bigger blocks that aren't full would be much, much better. Uh, is there some set of vested interests that were able to shape the narrative here? That Because this is, I think, Roger's sentiment is that there are these vested interests and the coin bases and the block streams of the world were able to shape the narrative such that Bitcoin Core got to take the Bitcoin ticker, the BTC ticker symbol, and run with it, despite the fact that they didn't have a compelling reason to keep the block size small. But but then again, I don't even understand what their vested interest would be. Why they why they will make more money off of this smaller block size? Do you, do you have a sense of that? Are you a conspiracy theorist? <laughs> I, I don't think it was about you know, some sort of secret business model for Blockstream or anything like that. I think to some extent, it was just also about, you know, these different camps and like this power. And, and then it became for the core developers about, okay, no, you know, we, we will not be coerced, right? We will resist just because we can resist and we don't want these companies or others with users to pressure us. And because the ironic thing is that even most of the blocks, you know, we did podcasts with Adam Back and Greg Maxwell and, you know, various people sort of on that side of this debate. And they would all agree that, yes, we should increase the block size, uh, just not now and not this way. And then, you know, they maybe would say, okay, you know, two megabytes a year from now, which may have been three years ago, two years ago. 
But then when that time came, you know, again, they would be against it. I think it's a tragedy a little bit. Uh, I think for me, it certainly made very clear the importance of having processes for upgrading decentralized networks. And I think these need to be explicit processes and the users of the networks need to actually have like a say and be able to execute this process. So I'm very interested in, you know, on-chain governance and using tokens for voting. I think that's like a huge idea. And, and I'm sure it's going to take many years for that to really mature and to work well. But I do think that that is kind of needed. Yeah, I mean, it may be that there's a sort of exception with Bitcoin and there's something to be said for, for being like the chain that never changes, you know, and you know Bitcoin today is the same or almost the same as what Bitcoin's going to be like in three years and 10 years. Because of course, if you have digital gold in mind, then that kind of stability and continuity has value. But I think for building like technology and blockchain networks that are going to support many users, it's a terrible approach. Didn't Vitalik and Vlad... The who are guys that are pretty prominent in the Ethereum community, namely Vitalik, who invented Ethereum. But didn't they both come out against on-chain voting? Yes, they did. Yeah, so they're against it. I think their argument is sort of, you know, Plutarchy. And then if you have coin... Hold- What's Plutarchy? As a Plutarchy is sort of, you know, the government of the rich and the wealthy. And of course, if you have oh, okay. you know, one coin, one vote, somebody who has like 100,000 Ether, and somebody has you know, 0.1 Ether, the one person has like literally 1 million times the say in the system. So if you have something like Ether and you have uh, voting with coins, you will have a small number of people who have you know, whales who basically will control the system. So I think that's absolutely correct. Now, the issue is, of course, now you also have a small number of people who control the system. And those are like the Ethereum core developers, of course, you know, Vlad and Vitalik being two of them. I think I'm sure their intentions are genuine and they think it's better for Ethereum. And, and they may well be right that Ethereum is a little bit like Bitcoin, right? It's become a big system, a very valuable system. So it shouldn't do those kind of experiments, but it should pr- progress slowly. So probably it does not make sense for Ethereum to implement, you know, on-chain governance. But if you set up a new system, I think there's going to be so much innovation coming out of on-chain governance and out of those coin votings. And of course, the powerful thing is that you can always fork the chain and you could cut out those veils, right? So if you feel like they act against the interest of the users, like someone can take the chain and just say, okay, well, your voting power is gone. We're going to launch our own network. We're going to distribute the coins in a different way. So you do have a powerful kind of checks and balances in these systems. So I think it's the right direction to pursue. And I think we're going to see a lot of interesting things coming out of on-chain governance. I wonder if, as applications get built on Ethereum, to what degree forking and building a new blockchain will remain feasible? Because you can imagine if somebody forked Linux and made Linux non-compliant with a bunch of applications built on top of Linux, well, probably the operating system would not see as much adoption. So, I mean, I I guess that's a side point to the argument we were just having, but it was you know something I just thought of, like how much leverage will people have in the future as more and more infrastructure gets built on top of the core infrastructure we're getting today? Yeah, that's a good point. I think forking can become difficult at some point. And yeah, I think it will depend a lot on the application. And of course, that provides some balance again that... It's good that there's some threshold, right? It's good that it isn't just super easy to like cut out other people and you know sort of wipe out what has been built up. But you're right that if you have this base layer technology that becomes very entrenched, maybe forking and changing the distribution and changing those things would become very, very difficult. And you know, I, I understand those arguments. And and of course, then I think what's, what's super important is the distribution of those tokens. And I think then having wide and fairly egalitarian distributions will be valuable. One thing I find interesting about the Ethereum versus Bitcoin community is that Ethereum's solution to scalability is, I would say, more ambitious than Bitcoin's solution to scalability. So I think Ethereum, they're not opposed to Lightning Networks. They will have ideas that are like Lightning Networks, but Ethereum is more pursuing this proof-of-stake Avenue, and then they also have these. I talked to 
Christian Reitweisner, I think, about this other, what was it? Um, plasma? Plasma, yeah, where you have these trees of, uh, of blockchains. And uh, these ideas are really cool. They're not exactly proven. You know, Casper, for example, provides a rollout plan for proof of stake. Do you have a sense for how much progress has been made on the Ethereum scalability side of things? Yeah, we actually just did a podcast about this a few days ago with uh, Carl Flourish. He's one of the people working on oh, yes. all of those. Oh, yes. Carl's the best. Yeah, he's cool. I love Carl. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my impression after that podcast was that actually the Ethereum scalability roadmap makes a lot of sense to me. I think it's very reasonable. It's well thought out. And it feels to me that it actually has a good chance of succeeding. Now, of those three things, right? So I think there's three three key parts of it. One is proof of stake. The other is plasma. And the third thing is sharding. Now, of those three things, sharding, I really do not understand. We did do a podcast with Vitalik once years ago and, <laughs> and tried to explain it. And I still didn't understand it. However, plasma seems actually pretty straightforward. And like, I think that's totally going to work. I don't see any reason why that wouldn't work. And the proof of stake, the Casper stuff, it doesn't look as trivial as Plasma or as simple as Plasma. But, you Mm -hmm. know, I still think that they're going to, I think overall confidence is high that, you know, they will get this to work on some semi-reasonable timeline. So I actually think that Ethereum has, you know, has a good roadmap, a good plan, and that they will be able to execute that. And if they do, you know, maybe they have a chance of really having, you know, the space chain and then lots of plasma chains and being able to support a huge amount of applications. Plasma chains, those are like application-specific side chains they could be application specific or they could not be but they are basically side chains and the idea here is that the security is still kind of guaranteed by the main ethereum chain but that you can then run computation and move tokens to the side chains and maybe the side chains among each other would also be interoperable and take you know could be configured in different ways it's it's sort of you know it's actually kind of similar to the original side chains vision that you know there's Blockstream people published. And of course, you know, Cosmos, which I, I used to work on and, and still kind of work on, is a similar, similar vision. So I think there's many chains being interoperable, like that is going to happen and it's going to work and it is going to bring a massive amount of scalability and interoperability to the blockchain world. Do you think it'll lead to interoperability between chains effectively or do you think that's going to be dependent on the other other chains, like, will Bitcoin need to make certain adaptations in order to have significant interoperability? Or what do you think the interoperability between currency story will look like? Yeah, so, of course, with Cosmos, right? So people are, I think I saw you had Ethan Buckman on, no? so people will probably have some familiarity with Cosmos, right? Yeah. So Cosmos, also the idea is that you, you're going to have uh, this kind of bridge to Bitcoin so that you'll be able to basically lock up Bitcoin and move it to another chain and then use it on the other chain and at some point move it back to Bitcoin. Now, the challenge is with Bitcoin has a very limited capabilities of sort of holding these Bitcoins in escrow. The only thing you can really use for that is multi-sig at this point, and multi-sig is not a good solution for that. Like, it's not going to work well. So, But, however, the Blockstream guys and a lot of Bitcoin guys are very interested in this thing called Schnorr signatures, and I, I actually don't know much about it, but I think that should actually enable having those those pegs as well to Bitcoin. So I think probably in the long run, even Bitcoin will be connected to that. And then when it comes to Ethereum or smart contract chains, I think it will, it will be you know fairly easy to connect all those chains. So I do think we are going to see you know an internet of blockchains. Talk a little bit more about Tinderman and your involvement in that project. Yeah, so I... As I mentioned before, I was working for Monax in 2015 and 16, and Monax was doing these enterprise chains, and, and they started with an Ethereum fork, and they wanted to have an Ethereum you know, in uh, private Ethereum chains. So, of course, you can't use proof of work because it doesn't make sense for all those consortium members to do mining. And so the Monax guys or you know, the team discovered Tendermint and started to use Tendermint. And then Ethan, you know, he was working at Monax at the time, and he started to work on Tendermint as well and building Tendermint. And, you know, then I joined Monax and, you know, we were basically trying to build and sell these applications, enterprise applications based on Tendermint. And Tendermint is really just 
well, again, people will probably check out Ethan's podcast. There will be much more thorough explanation, but it's just a, it's a very simple kind of consensus algorithm that allows you know, a particular number of parties to come to agreement about the order of transactions. And yeah, and then there work started on, on Cosmos and I joined Cosmos in January, 2017. So it was a few months before, before the token sale. And I was, I was kind of the first non-developer at that time. And, you know, I was working on that, on that uh, fundraiser and, you know, scaling that company and, and basically realizing this internet of blockchain, a Cosmos vision. And then I was working on that basically until the beginning of this year. And then I've left and since then, I've started building a new company called Chorus One. And our focus right now is to run infrastructure for blockchain networks, in particular to run validators for proof-of-stake networks. So we are right now basically working on running some of that infrastructure of Cosmos once that network launches. And tell me more about that. What does that mean that you're running validators for networks? Does that mean you're a infrastructure provider? So if you're... If you want to spin up some application-specific blockchain and you want additional validation infrastructure, you provide that? So that could be one thing, but actually the, the simple thing first is just that the, the token in Cosmos is called Atoms, right? So there's the staking token. And the idea of Atoms is that you can use Atoms to secure the network. So Atoms is a little bit like hashing power in Bitcoin, right? So let's say you have 10% of the Atoms. It's a bit like having 10% of the hashing power in Bitcoin. So you can you can vote on the validity of blocks. You can participate in governance and those kind of things. So if you're an Atom holder, you can basically say, okay, I want to participate in this process. I'm going to use my Atoms in this way and I'm going to earn a block reward and transaction fees uh, just like you could by running a Bitcoin miner. However, like you as a, for example, normal Atom token holder, you won't be you know, running that node that has this high availability node and highly secure and signs the blocks and all of that stuff. But this is a function a little bit like a mining pool, right? So someone who basically joins that voting power from the different miners, or in the case of Cosmos, right, joins that voting power from the different tokens and you know, simply produces blocks, validates transactions, and kind of runs the consensus process. So that's the function that we're building. Is it hard to start a company around that's involved, heavily involved in cryptocurrencies in this climate, this regulatory climate? Well, <laughs> I mean, starting a company is very simple, right? You should start a company. Of course, how, the question is, how is this going to be treated, you know, once it's launched and once it's live and once we run the service? And you are right that it's, it's a bit unclear how the service of validation and running these proof-of-stake networks will be treated by regulators. We think that it should be an unregulated activity, and we have spoken with lawyers about this. But, you know, that remains to be seen. And, and uh, you know, to be honest, we will have to deal with, with the problems as they arise, you know, if they will arise. Okay, so Tindermint provided some infrastructure and algorithms for this Internet of Blockchains. Ethereum has some space of Internet of Blockchains potential if the Plasma and Casper projects pan out. Is this a winner-take-all internet of blockchains world, or do do you envision a world where you have Ethereum and then you have this you know network of blockchains built around Ethereum, and then you have a a more generalized blockchain network perhaps that can evolve with the Tendermint style blockchains that the Cosmos network enables, and you know you just have these different blockchain networks interacting with each other? Or, or do you think there will be a, a winner-take-all? How do you think this will look in the scheme of things? I don't think it's going to be a winner-take-all. I think many of these approaches may pan out, and, and they have different pros and cons. So, for example, if you compare Plasma and something like Cosmos, you know, then with Cosmos, if you run your own Cosmos chain, then you can have your own governance and your own distribution of the staking tokens, and you can have your community that really controls fully that chain. Whereas with Plasma, the idea is that you're kind of inheriting the security of, of Ethereum, the root chain, right? So you, you don't have that same level of control. So I think those are different approaches. Now, some applications may not care, right? They will go on either one. So it may be a winner take much, I don't know, or it could really be uh, just 
a wide variety of blockchains used in, you know, for slightly different use cases, slightly different applications. I do think there's going to be a consolidation and, you know, maybe we'll have like three or four or maybe 10 big blockchain networks or types of blockchains. I don't think it's going to be a hundred. Yeah. There's a lot of topics I wanted to continue to explore with you. Unfortunately, I'm almost out of time. We should definitely do another show in the future. I'd love to have you back on. But uh, what are you focused on right now with Chorus? What's the roadmap? We've been focusing on hiring primarily. So we, we hired our kind of elite developer and we hired uh, a researcher to you know really understand a lot of these new protocols coming up and the dynamics and the economics and what it's like to run a validator in those. That's kind of what we're working on. We're still trying to hire a DevOps person, a DevOps engineer. So, so we almost basically built the initial team, and now we're working on on building that initial product. And so that's you know we want to be live when Cosmos goes live. So kind of with the genesis block of Cosmos, like be there running that validator. And then the next things will be to you know look beyond that. You know whether that's maybe running different Cosmos chains, or maybe we're going to be running a validator on something like Tezos or some of the other networks coming up. And yeah, so that's kind of the roadmap, at least for, for this year, I think that will be what we'll be focusing on. Are there are a lot of applications on that Cosmos network. I mean, right now it's not live yet, so there's none. There is a decent amount of interest. So in particular, one of the things that you'll be able to do in Cosmos, uh, there's this thing called Ethermint. Ethermint is basically the Ethereum virtual machine running on top of Tendermint. So that means it's it's like you can run the exact same applications like in Ethereum, except much faster and much cheaper. And so what we can have in Cosmos is that you have this Cosmos hub and then connected to it, you can have one of these Ethermint chains or maybe many of these Ethermint chains. And if you have that, the nice thing is you could literally just take an application that runs today on Ethereum and you can port it over there and you will have, you know, you can reuse your code and reuse your UI and it will be extremely easy to do that. And I think it may well be or it's likely that this is going to be ready before the Plasma chains. And so in that case, we really may be able to scale Ethereum in Cosmos earlier than Ethereum can scale Ethereum. And, and if that succeeds, then I think there could be a huge amount of demand because there's so many projects today that basically built their application for Ethereum. You know, it kind of works, but it doesn't work because the gas cost, the transaction fees in Ethereum is so high and the capacity is so low. So they're like waiting for better Ethereum or more scalable and cheap Ethereum uh, to come along. And so I think there's a real chance that the Cosmos will be able to do that. And, and if that happens, then I think there's going to be you know, very large demand, at least for that aspect, very soon. Brian, Fabian Crane, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's really great talking to you. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. Wow. 